This is Mark and Moore in the Morning. Hi, this is Mark and Colin from Mark and Moore in the Morning. Welcome to our podcast. This is episode 13. Thank you for finding us. Our goal is to share some health and wellbeing guests from our show along with celebrities. On our last podcast, we spoke to Nell Bryden from her home in New York about her new album, The Collection. In this episode, we'll be chatting to Brinda Chetty from the Hillingdon Hospital about her journey from nursing into a digital implementation role and Dr. Amir Khan as we learn about the science of the rule of six. But before all of that, last weekend was World Sepsis Day, so we caught up with two leading lights on the subject from the Hillingdon Hospital, Dr. Cathy Kale. Good afternoon to you, Doctor. Good afternoon. Can I call you Cathy? You can. Thanks. Um, otherwise, I'll go in some do- dark Doctor Who area. We don't need that. <laughs> and uh, just uh, arrived outside the studio in a floating police box is Ruma Dutta. Hello. Hi. Hiya, Director of Patient Safety. Hi. Thanks, both of you, for joining us this afternoon. World Sepsis Day, then. What is it? Is it, what is is it? it a new yeah. thing or has it been rebranded, renamed? Has it been known as something else in the past? Uh, well, it's, it's a world initiative. Okay, It's been right. going on. It was set up by the Global Alliance in about 2012. So this is about the year number seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's actually the first time we're doing anything about it at Hillingdon. So we've had an increasing emphasis on sepsis and how we look after patients with sepsis. Uh, over the last couple of years and so we felt that the time was right to get on and start doing some promotion yep. and to use it as it seemed a good opportunity to use it to promote what's going on in the trust already mm-hmm. and uh, to get patients involved and the staff involved as well. So I read that um, total this year I think it was 52,000 people have died from sepsis so it's not a small number is it? No I mean it's it's a it's a massive problem I mean it's it's patients being affected and patients dying Mm. um, are still big numbers and the numbers aren't yet improving. Um, And so there are lots of initiatives here and in other hospitals uh, in the region and across the country uh, with lots of teams doing different things. So we've we've poached some of their ideas uh, and we've thought of some of our own uh, and we're trying to do some stuff today to to help get things going. Okay, we'll talk about those initiatives in a second. But Uh, For um, people listening right now, what are the typical symptoms that people might associate with sepsis and how might they be treated? Um, Well, I think the main thing is just realising that sepsis is slightly different from infection. Mm. Okay, so people think, oh, I've got a chest infection. Is that sepsis? But it's it's a much uh, it's a bigger thing than just having an infection. So it's where your whole body starts to be affected. Uh, And that can be in different ways. Um, so different things you say to people to watch out for, um, not just having a high temperature. Um, so it can be that you start getting confused, uh, your speech is slurring. And these obviously might be then things that other people notice. So your family or your friends around notice and start saying, you know, what's wrong. Um, you can be very shivery. You can have the classic sort of fever that people have. Right. Um, uh, also feeling breathless if it was something like a, a chest infection that's started to spread around the rest of your body um people can feel really ill so there's this classic comment of you feel like you're going to die you're feeling so bad that you know you you feel like the the world is coming to an end uh which obviously is much more than just having a a cold or a a chest infection something like that um and other things that people might not think about like not weeing all day if you haven't passed urine all day um, that can be a, th- a sign that maybe your kidneys are being infected. Uh-huh. So it can be a- affecting your brain, so the things like confusion, it can affect your kidneys, things like not weeing, uh, or it can affect um, 
just generally how, you, how you're feeling in yourself in terms of feeling so unwell. Um, so lots of things that patients can watch out for, but they can be hard to sometimes decide whether it's that or whether it's something else. Um, so then it's yeah, stuff we have to take seriously. The symptoms do sound or feel like a flu. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah, or other things as mm. well. You could be feeling, uh, you could not be weeing because of other things, you know, of just mm. being dehydrated as opposed to being septic. So there's other things that could be a problem instead. So what type of um, things can cause sepsis? Um, so there are different sources. So okay. what we say is like a source. So it can be something like a urine infection. Um, so that's uh, like urine infections we know are very common. Mm-hmm. Um, I work in maternity, so obstetric patients. So patients who are pregnant, we know very commonly get urine infections. Um, then you've got other populations like elderly patients who might have urine infections, might have chest infections. So it might be a chest where it starts from. Um, then you're also looking at children, so children getting ill. Um, so that can be a whole varying number of things. So starting off with a sore throat, starting off with a bit of a temperature, a bit of a cough. Um, so lots of places where you can potentially get a, a urine infe- uh, get a get sepsis from. Mm. Okay, in terms of where it might start. So here within um, Hillingdon, um, how many uh, patients do you treat with that on a in a year? Is that something you would know? Uh, Kathy? Ah, I don't know the numbers. Okay. D- uh, yeah, I don't know the numbers. It, it's yeah. something that we've got better at in the last right. uh, 12 months, 18 months or so of actually looking at how our numbers are. And that's obviously the basis to us trying to improve how we look after the patients. Yeah. Because if we know how, what our numbers are to start with, then we can look at what we're doing to try and make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some stuff going on across the region. Um, with um, another hospital setting up a kind of dashboard, so like a way of keeping track of what the figures are. And so we're looking at that and starting to use those kind of things to look at our patients here uh, and look at the numbers. Sure. So you were talking earlier about these initiatives that you've um, been um, starting. Tell us about those. Um, So I've been doing this job for about uh, just over a year now, a year, Mm -hmm. 18 months. Um, So some of it comes as part of a new electronic observation system um, so there's something called HOBS or Hillingdon OBS, uh, which has been a really great app that one of our IT developing teams set up, and he did it himself, um, based on some national um, initiatives. And they're using something called a news chart. So that's a, a national early warning score. So a way of like checking how patients are, checking their blood pressure, checking their pulse, adding all these things up and seeing how unwell we think someone might be. And this is a good way to then tell different members of staff, okay, they've got a score of five, they've got a score of two, and then everybody understands the same language, and then they then understand what to do about it next. Um, and so sepsis, so infections, or when they become severe, so sepsis has become a, is a specific uh, trigger point in that scoring system. So if a patient gets a score of five or six, um, then you know that you're supposed to do some steps after that. And that's all part of this electronic system. So rather than staff, you, you, what, we, what it's trying to do is to help staff remember what to do yeah. so that it all comes up on a screen in front of you. As soon as you put in their pulse, their blood pressure, their temperature, uh, then the computer automatically adds it up yeah. and it automatically flashes up what you should be doing. And if that involves then starting to look at sepsis, then that's what it's telling you to do. Sounds great. Okay, yeah. So what other things have you got planned to really highlight and mark today? Oh, so for today, um, there are a few different things. Um, one thing, uh, some of them may sound a bit 
like a bit uh, a bit easy and a bit not very medical, but that's kind of the whole point. Mm. Um, is that for there for staff and there for patients as well. Um, so one of them is making a paper chain. So we've got uh, hundreds and hundreds of bits of paper, and we're getting staff and patients and visitors as well um, to just write anything that makes them think about sepsis, anything that makes them think about safety. Just a few words on the paper, and we're going to put the chain together um, and have it ready in the staff canteen on Tuesday. Nice. Uh, next week, which is Patient Safety Day. Nice. Um, so that's one thing. Um, there are some uh, Twitter pages mm-hmm. uh, going on uh, with some photos and things. So we're encouraging people to have their photos taken and, and stick them up on the on the on the Twitter pages for the hospital. Um, there are also some training things as well. So some mm. of it is to do with us starting off this week with um, some specific sepsis training to try nice. and make sure we get more staff trained. Um, so there's a goal to train 600 staff in 60 days. Okay. Um, so we've got that set up as well, and that started, which is great. Um, so, yeah, there's a few different things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've spoken about symptoms and treatments, but what should someone do who's listening now or has a member of the family that seems to be showing some of these symptoms? So the most important thing is not to ignore it and to take them seriously. Um, and there's, if you look, uh, you'll see the literature around the hospital, about the web page and other places you can go and look for information. But if you are worried, we would always advise you to take some advice. So phone 111. Um, and if you're worried that it might be sepsis, tell the person on the phone, I'm worried this might be sepsis. And they'll be able to give you some appropriate advice. I think one of the most important things to remember that It's really important that we think about sepsis and treat it early because if we don't treat it early, it can have significant consequences. The other side of that is actually a lot of patients who have these symptoms won't have sepsis. Mm. So we don't want to make people too worried into thinking that if you've got any of these symptoms, you've definitely got sepsis. Most people won't have, but for the few that will have, it's really important that we identify it early and we treat it early. So if you're not sure, phone 111 and get some advice. Dr. Kathy Kyle, Rumadasa, thank you so much for coming in this afternoon. It's been, it's been a real pleasure, uh, very insightful, and please come back another time. Many thanks. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Think you need medical help right now and you're not sure what to do? Go straight to NHS 111. Call, go online, or use the NHS app. You'll answer questions about your symptoms and receive advice about what to do next and where to go. And, if needed, a healthcare professional will call you. NHS 111 is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So, if you're not sure what to do, go straight to 111. Help us help you know what to do. This is Mark and Moore in the Morning Podcast. It's great to chat again with Dr Cathy Kale from the Hillington Hospital and Ruby Dart as well about World Sepsis Day. Now, Colin, let's get back to the podcast. What is your fact of the week? The fact of the week is I'm watching you, Mark. Okay. <laughs> That's a fact, is it? <laughs> Good liars tend to be better at detecting other people's lies. (laughs) I smell a rat. (laughs) (laughs) That's my fact of the week. This is Mark and Moore in the morning. So we're joined this afternoon by Brenda Chetty. She works within the Hillington Hospital. Uh, Afternoon to you, Brenda. Good afternoon. Now, I know Brenda is the first nurse with an IT role. Firstly, what's your, your official job title, Brenda? Uh, my official job title is a digital implementation lead nurse um, for the digital services, obviously, at the Hillington Hospital. Uh-huh. And you have a nursing background. Um, tell us yeah. about that. How long have you been in the clinician nursing environment? 
Okay. I have been a nurse for like 20 years now and I have worked in this trust for 17 years. Um, I started um, in one of the wards, uh, Hayes Ward, which was basically a surgical ward at that time I started. And then I moved to a ED department. Um, I've worked for five years in ED and then slowly moved to um, nurse practitioner where I've done seven years. And then I've done a bit of, um, after that I've moved to bed management discharge team. So I've done about four years in, in that. And then about a year and a half, I took this job. It was a great opportunity for me to um, take this job because of my previous background, obviously. Um, it is really helping me with, with my current role. So tell us about um, digital implementation. Um, one sees that maybe as providing solutions for doctors and surgeons to learn more or be able to react quicker maybe to patient care. But what else um, is involved in the work that you do? Um, my role basically is um, I bring a, a, an interesting dimension to the need of the culture change when it comes to digital transformation within the trust. Um, a lot of my work uh, basically centers on bridging the gap uh, between clinician and the digital services, um, especially the one that's required for a successful deployment. Um, if we are basically doing a project, um, I, I work in between them like to bridge the gap between that. Um, by ensuring that the clinical team and technical team work seamlessly, and I also act as a um, central knowledge hub for the digital project across the trust. Um, I act as a place where clinicians um, who are keen to, to use our uh, new technologies and projects, and they can turn to me because they know my face, obviously, on the clinical side. Um, they can turn to me and ask me for advice and, and validation, obviously, how how can they progress with their ideas that they have? And I have had that quite a lot for the last few months, especially during our COVID period. I had few, few clinicians and peers and colleagues coming to me and said, Brinda, you know, we've got this idea. Um, how do you think we can make this work? So this is a bit. Yeah. So is it um, medical staff uh, coming up with some of the ideas of how they can transform uh, with digital solutions or is it coming um, from NHS England or public health or from the clinical uh, care commission? Uh, we have, it's mostly all our clinicians here in the hospital. It could be doctors, it could be nurses, it could be education, it could be anybody from, uh, from the trust basically. If they have um, any issue, for example, um, I would say we, we use our clinical handover for our um, hand over here. We use nurse center for our clinical hand over here. And if there is uh, the doctors and nurses, especially on medical team, they use this as a clinical handover for patient. So if there's any improvement they can do, especially during the COVID period, if there is anything they can do, they can add on this to make communication much better between patient, uh, clinicians and family. Um, we, we try to, to work with them and make this work for them. For example, I'm not sure if you heard about the communication loved one. Um, 
and then we've we've done like a COVID list on nerve centers as well, where um, it's easy for people to communicate, um, nurses to communicate, or doctors to communicate with um, families on the um, on patient who is on the wards. Now you mentioned the um, pandemic, and obviously um, every hospital has been having to almost re-engineer how it worked over the past couple of months as um, it got to grips with. Um, the coronavirus have there been examples in your work where um you had to work quickly and change something to make everybody's lives easier um there, there's quite a lot i mean it has worked i mean i'm for this one i'm just talking about the whole digital service mm. um we we have worked the whole team has worked very hard obviously to um just help supporting. I mean, the first um, was to deploy quite a lot of, of laptops and iPads so that people can work remotely. The one that was um, shielding and the one that couldn't come to work, that we, we were trying to deploy quite a lot of laptop and iPad to them so that they could um, work despite they couldn't come to work, but they were all working remotely. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we've had to act quite fast, obviously, to change quite a few, the way that we are currently working in our department. We, yeah. we used to have a daily standard, a COVID standard, we would call it, um, in our team. Every day we would basically have that standard um, at half past nine, where all of us would be meeting via Teams meeting, and we will be discussing all the plans and that has to be obviously all the tasks that is pending all the tasks and when they will be completed so that um, obviously our CIA, deputy CIO Matt Kybert and Minal uh, Patel who is our associate um, ADO she will be feedback to um, we have the silver silver command so she will go and they will go and feedback to them and we have also um, introduced the teams and um, i'm sure you've heard of teams meeting yeah. uh, we've introduced that teams meeting obviously this has been uh, introduced since the covid period and i think team meeting will, is something that will stay uh, because this is how we are all progress now with virtual meeting every meeting is happening virtually i do get personally i do get involved in a lot of training because with new staff coming in i do support help with our um, clinical training system like uh, if there's nerve center training or if there's headshots training hsr training i do get involved and all these are being run virtually currently we've also introduced aa uh, which is attend anywhere during the pandemic as well and um, aa is um, basically virtual consultation where um, outpatient uh, and consultants, physiotherapists, um, specialist nurses are using this. Uh, it's virtual consultation where they see their patients um, virtually and thus reducing patient attending their outpatient appointment um, in the hospital. So AA has obviously been rolled out and it's working um, very well currently during the trust. Mm. When we think about uh, patient care and those patients currently on a ward now where they might not get the opportunity to have visitors on the wards, um, yeah. where have we been, where have you been using technology to help connect them both in terms of their entertainment, uh, but also um, keeping connected with their friends and family? Yeah, um, the team has worked, obviously the team has worked uh, very close with the care, uh, care plus team. And we've introduced the um, love one communication and, and where you can send, anybody can send an email to their, um, they can send an email, they can send a message, they can even 
video or they can just send it to their family, to the loved one on the wards. And that gets shown to the patient and also the nurses. I mean, what they've been doing, there's a communication. Um, there was a communication um, added to our um, clinical handover where nurses and consultants were using this to call family um, morning and afternoon um, mm -hmm. or two different times during the day and to make sure that they update the loved one at home to say, oh, obviously, Mrs. X um, is doing well today and we've done this for her today. And then if there is any worries, any concern, they go feedback and then they come back, they say to the family, we'll give you another call in the afternoon and provide you what the care we provide, we we'll give you an update, providing you um, the care that we're providing to your loved one. And this has been working very well. Um, especially the loved one communication one. It's been working very well. And quite a lot of wards we've given ITU and we've deployed quite a lot of, of iPads and phone on ITU. Oh, and obviously um, a lot of other areas where, where they were FaceTiming patients so they can um, FaceTime their, 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 their loved one so they yep. can see each other. So I think that's, that's a very great idea, especially during the COVID period. You are at home and while your loved one is in hospital, you can't visit. And I think this is some kind of reassurance when you see, when you see your loved one in hospital, obviously that gives you a big assurance. Yeah, and having free Wi-Fi available across the hospital site. Oh, that's uh, another one, yeah. Yeah, just uh, enables anybody who's coming on site um, and being you know, disconnected almost from the outside world uh, to be able to have that connection still. Mm, that, that's great, yeah. I mean, the free Wi-Fi was, was, was a great. When that was introduced, it was really great. I mean, we had had quite a few good feedbacks about that because, mm. as you mentioned, yeah, you it's free and hey you can connect and be, be interacted with your with your loved one yeah now brenda finally before i let you go because i'm sure uh, you're going to be very busy this wednesday um tell me of all the projects that you've worked on since you've been in this role what would you say is your standout success what are you saying you, something you're really really proud of I mean, um, currently, I mean, I would say we, we've been working really, especially with the COVID period, we've been working with Medopad. I'm not sure if you heard Medopad. Medopad is, is, is a system that um, we've, um, the integrated uh, respiratory team um, has in, introduced. It's for discharge patients with COVID patients. So if a patient had, has COVID and they discharge home, they get added to the Medopad portal. And what happens is the team, the respiratory team, uh, manage them remotely. So with that, they get um, a pulse oximeter with them. They take the pulse oximeter home with them and they can input their data. It's an app. They input their data. What's their respiration rate? What's their oxygen level? What's their temperature? They can input all that data on, the, on that portal. And the clinicians, the respiratory team can access this and they can view the patient and they can um, advise what to do for example if somebody has is really unwell obviously they would advise uh, you need to bring an ambulance and come home so they are monitoring their patient remotely and uh, this has just literally gone live um last last week um, and we're very proud because um currently uh, there are two covid patients that's been discharged on that list and it's been managed by the team our next phase is to, to go to the phase two. We want uh, to do the same with um, 
rolling out Medopad in ED. So that would be probably a next phase for this. And we are just basically in the process of, of contacting the team, the right people, and just to progress this further. So this is something that's really went well, I would say. Yeah, Brenda, it's, it's fascinating isn't it? how technology can just make clinicians' lives easier and patients' care um, higher and safety standards increasing as well. Uh, congratulations yeah. on being the first nurse to be in an IT role. Uh, I'm sure then we need to have many, many more of you. Definitely, it would be. I mean, since I've joined the trust, since I've joined the team, um, there has been quite a few, um, especially with, with my input, there has been quite a few projects that I have worked on and I'm very proud of with my clinical support and everything. And I really do hope if we have a, a couple more like me, we would do a much, much better job. Brinda Chetty from the Hillington Hospital Trust. You're listening to the Market More in the Morning podcast with some of the guests we've had on our show this week. And we started the week by thinking about the government changes around the coronavirus, their introduction of their new strategy of hands, face, space, and the rule of six came in place as of Monday. We caught up with Dr. Amir Khan, a familiar face from the television, to ask him about the science behind the government changes. Afternoon, thanks for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you on the show. I've been trying to get hold of you for a while. Now, tell us, uh, new guidance then, hands, face, space. Is this not just a rehash of the same guidance we've had for the past six months? It, to be honest, it is a rehash of the same guidance, but it's a new campaign and it's an easy way to remember it. It's hands, face and space. We, we know the numbers of coronavirus are going up, so it's a timely reminder to the public of the three crucial behaviours we all need to do in order to stop the spread of the coronavirus. So wash our hands regularly, wear a face covering in appropriate scenarios, be aware of others not in your household and manage your space around them as much as possible. That's the hands, face, space campaign. And yes, we're going over old ground. It's money for old rope, but people have become complacent and numbers are going up. So it's a reminder of all of the things we should be doing. And there's been lots of talk, certainly from Matt Hancock, um, saying that actually it's the younger generation that it seemed not to be uh, understanding the real risks that they could be introducing. Yes, uh, I think I don't think we should play a blame game, but from from the the tests that are coming back positive, it is the younger generation, and they've had a tough time of it recently. You know, they've missed out on education, they've might missed out on job opportunities, and with lockdown easing, you can understand why they may start to socialise and become complacent. And it's better to have an understanding of that rather than point the finger. So we can do more targeted approach campaigning to them as well. Uh, but it is important that they they listen and that they they do stick to this hands face space campaign uh, because they might not get symptoms of the virus but they will pass it on to other people and eventually it will find a vulnerable person and they will get very unwell with it and potentially die but the other thing about young people is you may get very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all but I've seen young people who had mild symptoms of covid now experiencing the long arm of COVID, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, pins and needles in your arms and legs, you know, all of that kind of stuff that can go on uh, for a long, long time. And it is really, really difficult to treat. So you're not immune to it. So is there any science behind this hands face space campaign? Yes, lots of science. So in terms of washing your hands, uh, we know that the virus can be transmitted if people have, have coughed or sneezed or, or talked over hard surfaces. 
boxes uh, uh, and then people touch that hard surface, get the virus on their hands and then they touch their face uh, and it gets into them that way. So if you're washing your hands regularly, you're less likely to have the virus on your hands and, and pass it to yourself or to other people. The, the face coverings, that's newer evidence. We know that the main way this virus spreads is through respiratory droplets, uh, which can be cough, sneeze, or even just talked out. Uh, so the face coverings catch these larger respiratory droplets that contain the virus and stop them from spreading. Uh, and also the face coverings now we know offer some protection to the wearer. So you're not just wearing it for other people, it does offer you some protection as well. And then the space, you know, like I say, these aerosol, uh, sorry, these droplets that are, contain the, the virus can, can be coughed out. They can go as far as two meters, sometimes more, but the vast majority are within this two meter radius. So if you're outside of that radius from the person, you're very unlikely to catch the virus from them. Now, I've uh, seen the uh, video that the government's health organization has put together that really illustrates this. And when my wife saw it, she said, this is brilliant, Mark. I'm sleeping in the bed and you've got the sofa. Um, this is this <laughs> space um, between people you're socially gathering with, not necessarily people within your social bubble. Yes. So this are, these are people outside of your household and outside of your social bubble. And the video is a really good visual reminder of how this virus gets transmitted. When people are just chatting to you, uh, they, they, they could be potentially transmitting the virus. Uh, and it'll show you how far it can go and how far you should be away from them. And it also shows how it can land on hard surfaces and then be picked up by other people as well. So it's not just tables, it's door handles, food, that kind of thing in supermarkets that people may handle and then put back on the shelf uh, so it's really really important that people watch this video it's available on the nhs.uk forward slash coronavirus website uh, and honestly i saw it and i feel like i know it all about coronavirus uh, but it, it, it's a really impressive video i, I sat down and watched it going gosh i have really got to make sure we get this message out uh, final thoughts on this particular campaign uh, as we um, approach winter season it's going to get colder, it's going to get wetter. Uh, does that increase the risks of uh, spread of the virus? Yes, it really does, because when it's colder and wetter, as you say, people socialise indoors instead of outdoors. And we know the majority of spread of this virus has, has, has happened indoors. And when you're inside, you don't wash your hands as, as often, particularly if you're in contact. You know, if you're seeing people from outside of your household, you don't wash your hands as much because you're busy chatting to them, socialising with them. Uh, if you drink alcohol, your social inhibitions uh, will melt away and you may hug them and get closer to them. Uh, so, so winter is a time we have to be careful. And there's other viruses around. There's the flu virus, there's the common cold. Uh, and if your body is is taking a battering fighting off these viruses, it makes you more at risk of getting the complications of the coronavirus if you were unlucky enough to get it at the same time. And guidance remains the same. If you think you've got the symptoms, get tested. Yes. Get tested. Ring 119 for a free test uh, and, and get tested. Honestly, it is, it is so important. Dr. Mir Khan, thank you so much. Before we let you go, can I ask you one more question? Yes. Uh, it's really about uh, your book, the best-selling book, oh. The Doctor Will See You Now. I said at the top of the interview, we've been trying to get you on our show for a while to talk about your book. Firstly, congratulations. It's a great read. Thank if you. anybody's uh, not heard it or seen it, what's it about and how can they get it? Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Doctor Will See You Now. And it's about, you know, my life in general practice, really, or, or, or the idea of general practice, because people go and see their doctor. There's one doctor that most people will have seen is their GP. And 
GPs have a real kind of privileged access to people's lives and, and the emotions that that comes with uh, uh, are really heightened. And, and, and so I try to capture all of that in this book um, and, and really give an idea of what it's like to be a GP because it, it, it is hard work. Lots of people think all the drama takes place in hospitals, uh, but we get our fair share of drama here as well. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're at home thinking I can never get a GP appointment or those receptionists were really mean to me and uh, all of this kind of stuff, read the book because it will put it all into perspective for you, honestly. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Amir Khan. The doctor will see you now. Um, hands, face and space. That's the key message of the day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank Mark you. Mark and more in the morning. Best bits on the podcast. That's just about it for this week. On our next podcast, we'll be talking to Paul Carrick and we'll be getting fit with a former bodybuilder. You can find out more about our daily show at markandmore.com. Also, please leave us your comments and rate us where you get the podcast. We really love your feedback. Keep it coming. You can always email us with your thoughts at studio at markandmore.com. Until next time. Bye. Bye.